There is no greater form of worship than submitting ourselves to the preaching of the Word of God. And so we come to that time right now, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 23 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Acts of the Apostles, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke. While there are no great doctrinal themes in this text to examine, nor are there any profound admonitions to lay hold of and apply to our lives, we are going to see that we do come to yet another historical narrative that literally screams the magnificent truths of divine sovereignty. As Job said in 42 verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And as we look at the text this morning, we will be able to admit at the conclusion that only a fool would deny God's sovereignty. Over and over again, we have seen in our study of the Acts of the Apostles that the providence of Almighty God orchestrates all of the events on the earth to accomplish His purposes, which is ultimately to glorify Himself through the saving of His elect and the building of His church. And this should be of profound encouragement to each of us that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, because, dear friends, herein we have our hope. If God was not able to sovereignly orchestrate all of the things in the world, if God had not ordained all things, and if He were not able to rule over all things to bring to fruition His will, quite frankly, we would have no hope. Instead, we rejoice knowing, as Paul said in Roman, or Ephesians 1, verse 11, that in Him also... We have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we find great solace in this truth as we reflect even upon our unsaved children. For Paul said in Romans 9 and verse 11, for even the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, are ultimately subject to his saving purposes. He went on to say that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And because of his sovereign rule, we know that our salvation is secure Because Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Obviously, these staggering truths motivated the Apostle Paul throughout his dreary days of ministry. And before we read the text this morning and study it, I want to remind you again of the context After saving his life from the Jewish mob, the Romans take Paul and bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Supreme Court of our day. And 
that resulted in absolute chaos. And Paul had to be rescued again. Otherwise, he would have been torn into pieces by the Jewish leaders. So Paul was deeply discouraged. He must have thought, you know, all of my efforts have failed. And as I think about it, he must have felt like Elijah. Remember when Elijah fled from Jezebel and he went into the wilderness and he sat down under a juniper tree and begged to die. Paul must have felt something like this. Or he might have felt like Isaiah, who you will recall in Isaiah 6, offered himself to go and speak for God. And yet the Lord told him, I'm going to render the hearts of these people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Eventually, I'm going to judge them and only a small, teeny little remnant will I save. Or he might have felt like Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet Jeremiah 9, verse 1, he said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for Judah. And in the midst of Paul's discouragement, we know in Acts 23, verse 11, that the Lord came and stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And even though it's not recorded, I'm sure the Lord gave him other words of encouragement. And we should all take note that the Lord's encouragement was not based upon his past success, but rather based upon his submissive will to a sovereign God, his confidence that God was in control of every aspect of his life, as well as his faithful obedience to his calling. Beloved, please understand, only God can bring real comfort in times of distress. And that comfort will only come to those who have a grasp of his sovereignty and who are faithful and obedient to his calling upon their life. When all seems lost, dear friend, you will search in vain to find comfort anywhere else except in the God of all comfort May I remind you of what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, when he, when he comforted the disheartened Thessalonians. He said that you are beloved by the Lord because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he said, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now, think about how crucial it was for God to come to Paul at this time in his life and ministry. Remember now, he's gone to the Jews. He spread the gospel to the Jew first. And that has threatened their power and their privilege, especially the leaders 
And so they're saying we have got to stop the spread of Christianity because, indeed, it was spreading like wildfire. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were coming to Christ. And they had to stop it under the guise of honoring God and preserving his law. So Paul is maligned, he's beaten, he's rejected. And now we're going to see he's under house arrest. But the worst is yet to come. The Jewish, his, I should say his Jewish kinsmen now are going to formulate a conspiracy to kill him. How reminiscent this is of Jesus and what was done to him. But friends, as we're going to see what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And although Paul, and you must understand this, although he did not know how, without a doubt, he knew that God was up to something. Because the Lord had come to him and said, don't worry, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. And indeed, this plot became the catalyst to safely deliver Paul from the hands of his Jewish kinsmen and deliver him into the hands of Roman governors and kings. And ultimately, it would be his ticket to Rome itself. And I want you to join me this morning in examining three themes as we approach the text. Number one, we're going to see the feudal conspiracy. And I've entitled my discourse as such. Secondly, the providential protection. And finally, the final rejection. So the Sanhedrin now realize that they've run out of legal options here to kill Paul. And therefore, in their wicked minds, the only thing that you can do is resort to illegal methods to accomplish your purpose. And some of their cronies are all too willing to lend them a hand. And so we see, number one, the feudal conspiracy. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath. Anathematizon hautus in Greek, and it literally means they anathematized themselves. Literally, what it means is they chose to place themselves under a curse. They took a vow. To invoke divine judgment upon themselves if they failed to do what they promised to do. And they probably would have said something like this. God, I want you to cause us to die a slow death of starvation if we do not kill this blaspheming troublemaker, Paul. So when it was day, they formed this conspiracy, bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to, to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. I find it fascinating to think that these men had no reservations about devising this conspiracy without permission from the Sanhedrin. 
nor is there any indication that they were afraid that the devout of all Israel might condemn them for concocting such a diabolical plot that was so blatantly in violation of God's law. No, they knew full well the character and the conduct of their leaders. They knew that they would be complicit because they were all too well familiar with who these men really were. It was kind of like a religious mafia, if you will. And such has been the case down through history. Dear friends, Satan schemes. He is the God of this world, we are told. The whole world lies in his lap, John tells us. Satan schemes and men carry out his wishes. Usually they do so unwittingly. They think instead that they're acting on their own and justly so. But we are told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And Satan and his minions work within men to somehow achieve his fiendish purposes. Like Judas, who betrayed Jesus, remember? Judas had convinced himself that he deserved to cash in on Christ. And once he finally realized that Jesus was not going to establish the kingdom... And he was not going to get some position of promise that he, uh, he, he was banking on. He cashed in his chips for 30 pieces of silver. Never once did he think, you know, I am Satan's ape and I love it so. Well, likewise, the fiendish fanatics here in this text had no idea that they were really Satan's pawns. Moreover, they had no idea that ultimately they were serving the Most High God to accomplish His purposes, even like Judas, whom, interestingly enough, according to John fifteen sixteen, Jesus chose. In fact, His role as betrayer was all part of God's sovereign plan that had been decreed in eternity past, it was a plan that had been predicted in the Old Testament, in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, as well as in Zechariah 11, and later again, even by Jesus in Matthew 27. Dear friends, what an amazing thought to think that God actually ordained his enemies. And please hear this. He's ordained yours and mine as well. Consider this the next time you are attacked or you find yourself in some great adversity. <laughs> Say to yourself, Lord, as difficult as this is, I know that somehow you have ordained this for my good and your glory. And therefore, I will not demand an explanation. I will not shake my fist in your face and say, why? But rather, I will humbly bow and say, what? Lord, what would you have me do given this circumstance that would bring glory to you? Isn't it interesting? Paul did not say, God, I demand an audience with you. This is not fair. I, I deserve better than this. Look at all that I've done for you. Don't you see what's going on? Why don't you do something? What arrogance to think. That God owes us an explanation. But rather, 
Paul just simply trusted God, knowing that he was fully in charge of everything. He remained content, patient and obedient. Even as Peter reminds us in first Peter five and verse five, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the sufficient or to to the weak. And he went on to say. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And Peter was referring to a time of testing for those people. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So these self-righteous fools act upon the impulses of their flesh. They're convinced that they're serving God, unaware that indeed they are serving God, but in a way that they could not imagine, one that would ultimately evoke his wrath. And so the feudal conspiracy now is set into motion. And let's see what happens. And this brings us to the second theme that emerges from the text, and that is the providential protection. Notice verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, let's stop for a moment. Do you realize the implications of this statement? Isn't this interesting? This is Paul's nephew. Now, a question would come to mind. Why was this young man sympathetic to his uncle? Because after all, Jews were considered dead to their family if they converted to Christianity. I wonder what's going on here. Why the kindness? I have to wonder, and certainly the Bible doesn't tell us, but perhaps other members of his family had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Perhaps her, perhaps his sister, perhaps this young nephew. We don't know. But God had it planned all along. And then we see in verse 17. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Therefore, the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. I find it interesting. God could have used a thousand methods to expose the secret, but he uses this young man, Paul's nephew. The nephew of a badgered and beleaguered apostle. No doubt that must have been another form of comfort to him. 
Don't you wonder about the untold implications in this young man's life and even the rest of his family? Maybe someday in glory we will know. So now, even as the unseen finger of God can be seen in the forging of this conspiracy, likewise, it is now going to be used in foiling it. You know, we've seen this many times over the course of redemptive history. As I was meditating on this text, my mind went back to the story of Joseph. Remember how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers? He was sold into slavery. And even then in, in Egypt, he was falsely accused. He was imprisoned, ultimately interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. And then he was elevated to be a ruler over Egypt so that ultimately he could preserve his family and the remnant of Israel. A remnant of God's chosen people. And in recognition of God's sovereignty. And his humble submission to it, he said this to his brothers in Genesis 45 when he confronted them. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He went on to say to preserve a remnant in the earth. It was not you who sent me here, but God I also think of Moses when he was a baby. Remember when his mother constructed a wicker basket, a little ark, and covered it with tar and pitch and placed the little vessel among the reeds of the Nile where royalty went to bathe. And then God in his providence brings Pharaoh's own daughter To rescue the child, the child that was being protected by his mother from Pharaoh's plan of exterminating all of the Hebrew males, male children. And ultimately, God used Moses to deliver his covenant people from Egyptian bondage and to show to the world that he indeed is the Lord God over all Our only hope of salvation, and that salvation is only through the blood of the Lamb. And I think also of the story of Esther, where we saw God fulfilling a promise that he made a thousand years earlier to utterly eradicate the wicked Amalekites from the face of the earth for the things that they had perpetrated against the Jews, his people. And there was a man by the name of Haman who was a descendant of those people. And in that story, you will recall that Haman hated the Jew Mordecai and all of the Jews. Those hostilities remained with him. And he came up with a plot for their extermination to put a final end to God's covenantal promises. No doubt is what Satan was thinking. His covenantal promises to Abraham and David. And yet we see the unseen finger of God even there. You will recall that God caused Ahasuerus the king to have insomnia that night. And because he couldn't sleep, he called for the most most boring 
thing he could possibly think of to read. And his servants brought to him the records of the chronicles of his kingdom and began to read them to him. And while he was reading that and hearing all of this, he was reminded of a man named Mordecai who had uncovered a plot against his life and saved his life. And all of this God used to predispose the king to have mercy on the Jews, especially when later on he discovered Haman's fiendish plot to exterminate them. And the text says that he wanted his police to basically cover Haman's face and hang him on the very gallows that he had created and prepared for Mordecai. And Mordecai was then elevated to a man, uh, to a position where he was second only to the king. Beloved, I give you these examples to remind you that God is in control of everything. And as I think of how he's preserved his people with such astounding protection, I can only echo the words of the psalmist when he said in Psalm 21, 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber, neither slumber nor sleep. And over and over again, dear friends, we see God ruling over the affairs of history. And he continues to do so even to this day. And he will continue until his plan reaches its ultimate fruition and consummation. Oh, child of God, never forget that our God rules over even the most minute details in our life. He has a plan and it cannot be thwarted. Alva J. McLean exalted the role of our Lord Jesus Christ in something that he said, exalting his sovereign rule over all things. And he said, and I quote, age does not follow age by a kind of fortuitous concourse. There is an orderly arrangement, a plan in the midst of seeming chaos and confusion. The great periods of history were not ushered in by chance, nor are they wound up by the will of men. The Son of God is the maker of the ages, the Father of the everlasting, the God of history. Because this is so, the man who has found God in Christ has laid his hand upon the key which explains the riddle of cosmic history. And the more we know of him, the closer we come to the heart of the mystery. For he is indeed the light of the world, intellectually as well as spiritually and morally. But here's the trouble. McLean went on to say, men are trying to understand history apart from Christ, in whom we have found the God who is described as the king eternal or better king of the ages, end quote. And once again, dear friends, we see these glorious truths being manifested here in the story of Paul and his deliverance by the unseen finger of God, the providential protection and deliverance of God. Now let's notice how the commander responds to the news from Paul's young nephew, beginning in verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. 
So in other words, at nine o'clock tonight, which, by the way, would have been about an hour into their sleep cycle. You see, people in those days didn't wait up to watch the 10 o'clock news and then watch Andy of Mayberry. When darkness came, it's time to go to bed. Didn't have any lights, so you went to bed. So in other words, about the time people are falling asleep here, we're going we're gonna to leave. But what they would do is they would, they would go to sleep basically at dark and get up at the crack of dawn. So this is what he says. I want you to get 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, literally javelin throwers. These are foot soldiers. Verse 24, they were also to provide mounts to, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So they're going to get a horse for Paul as well. They've got to move swiftly. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, let's stop there for a second. Notice that he kind of twisted the truth here a little bit. He didn't say I put him in chains illegally and I almost scourged him. But fortunately, he said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a Roman. He kind of left that out. He goes on, he says in verse 28, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So that was his letter. And we read in verse 31 that the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, which would have been essentially the governor's house. Antipatris, by the way, was about 35, 40 miles from Jerusalem. It was a Roman military post about halfway to Caesarea. And you must understand that it was on the border of Judea and Samaria. And therefore, the danger of any Jews venturing past that particular point would have been highly unlikely. And so they were going to, in essence, steal away into the night and get out of the territory where the plot could have been carried out. And I think, fortunately, for the foot soldiers accompanying the mounted cavalry, the trek was largely downhill because Jerusalem is much higher than Caesarea, higher in elevation. Even so, imagine receiving the orders about bedtime. Guys, at nine o'clock, we're going to want you to march very, very quickly for 35 to 40 miles to Antipatris. 
I'm sure they were excited about that. But we see that they do this and Felix agrees to hear his case upon the arrival of his accusers. And as we're going to see, they never show up because they know that they have no legal claim against Paul. And I'm sure the conspirators are not going to show up because within about a week, they're going to look like anorexics. They're going to be too weak to get there. And so God has once again delivered his his servant from the hands of the enemy. And he's placed him in a comfortable room in the governor's official residence. And now he has set the stage for a sequence of hearings that are going to actually cover several years and ultimately fulfill his promise to Paul to go to Rome. But dear friends, what an exceedingly sad ending this is for the Jews. I want to take you back to Jerusalem just for a minute. As we look finally at number three, the final rejection. Think about what has happened here. Think about the stark contrast between the Jews and the Romans. The Jews were called to be a light unto the Gentiles, a light unto the pagan Romans. And yet what we see is the kindness of the Romans versus the cruelty of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? We see Romans that obeyed their laws and Jews that utterly disregarded them and twisted them for their own purposes. We see the Romans giving every legal consideration to Paul. And yet the Jews deprived him of every legal consideration. You know, this is always Satan's methods to take people in power and to have them look at the laws and then twist them, disregard them, rewrite them to somehow accomplish his purposes. And we see this routinely here in our country. And here we see that God has every reason to judge the wickedness of his chosen people, as well as to show compassion upon the Gentiles. Think about it. The gospel went to the Jew first, but as a nation, what did they do? They rejected it. They killed Jesus, their Messiah, the only hope of salvation. And now the final attempt for reconciliation has been met with violence and Jerusalem's fate is sealed. What a tragedy. And now because the Jews refuse to be a light to the Gentiles, as we read in Romans 8 through 11, Paul will take the gospel to Rome. And the Gentile church will now become the custodians of truth. And what a tragedy. And unfortunately, this has been a pattern for the Jews, even in the Old Testament, and it remains so to this day. And friends, you must understand, this is a graphic picture of the utter depravity of man and man's need for regeneration, man's utter inability to save himself. Think about it. In the Old Testament, we read how Israel became proud, how Israel became self-righteous and they abused their privileges as God's chosen people. They presumed upon God's grace. They violated his law. They sinned with impunity. And as we read earlier today, he raised up various prophets like Jeremiah to confront the sins of, of the people and to call them to repentance. 
and thus avoid God's judgment with Jeremiah. It would have been with the Babylonians coming down upon them. And he did this for 40 years. 40 years he preached to the people and they ignored him. They would not heed the word of the prophet. Again, a graphic picture of America today. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13, we read, From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. My, what an indictment. And they have healed, referring to the priests, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace. There is no peace. In other words, you're okay with God. Look at all the good things you do. God is your buddy. He's your friend. We are the chosen people here. They were not at peace with God. They were at enmity with God. They were hostile to God. And God's wrath abided upon them. But they preach peace, peace. There is no peace. And he went on to say, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all, referring to these priests, these prophets. They did not even know how to blush. Can you imagine that? Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they will be cast down, says the Lord. And in verse 19, he says, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. Dear friends, may I say, just as a footnote, if God does not judge America, he owes Judah an apology. And as we think of Paul in our text this morning, once again, we see history repeating itself in the first century. The, the, the conditions of Israel are, 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 are all the same here, all the same characteristics. And this is going to result in divine judgment. And I find it interesting from the birth of the church in 30 A.D. until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There are 40 years, 40 years that they could have repented, 40 years to hear the gospel of grace and even years before that. With the Lord Jesus. But they refused. They rejected the truth. They rejected the Messiah. They denied him. They denied his resurrection. And they rejected the words of his apostles. And soon the same fate that came upon their ancestors would fall upon them under the hands of the Romans. For 13 years from this date, Rome would come in and massacre them. Now, the question arises, did God permanently abandon Israel? Many people say that he has. Has God violated, therefore, his unconditional covenants to to Abraham and to David and thus to his chosen people, the ethnic Jews? And it's my humble opinion that that is not at all the case. You see, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah did not nullify the unilateral, 
unconditional, irreversible covenants that God made to Abraham and David concerning the establishment of an earthly kingdom. It only postponed it. Now, certainly the custodianship of divine truth would be taken away from the Jews who rejected it and would be now transferred to the Gentile church. And we're going to see that. In fact, the Lord said in Matthew 21, 43, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And likewise, Luke 2016 makes this very clear where Jesus talks again about the Jews who killed the prophets and killed the son. And therefore, they will lose the vineyard, which was the sphere of God's saving purposes, the, the privilege and responsibility of disseminating divine truth. They're going to lose that. But, dear friends, that transfer will not be permanent as we look at Scripture. In fact, in Luke 21, verse 24, we read that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. By the Gentiles until, and dear friends, this is the great word of hope for the Jew. It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So you must understand that certainly Israel was temporarily displaced, but it was not permanently replaced. Is God finished with Israel? Let Paul answer this for us as we close this morning. Will you turn to Romans 11? Turn to Romans 11. And I want to read to you the words of the Apostle that give such clarity to this very issue. Has God permanently abandoned His people has now the church replaced Israel. Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11 of Romans. I say then, God has not rejected His people. Has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. The term there in the original language speaks of a predetermined choice to set his love upon Israel and establish an intimate personal relationship with them. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? Here it is. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears 
to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, referring to the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? My, what a promise. Verse 13, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if the rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise and in your own estimation. Put it a little bit differently. Lest you think that somehow you have permanently replaced Israel. I want you to understand that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until there's that word again, that word of hope until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, in other words, at that time, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, 
they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And then Paul closes, his, closes with this glorious doxology. Oh, he says, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, dear friends, what a testimony of God's infinite love and mercy and grace and his faithfulness to all of his covenant promises. May we rejoice in these marvelous truths and apply them to our lives until we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And we thank you for what we have heard today. What a reminder it is to us. What a refreshing, comforting, encouraging reminder it is to us. That our God rules over all things. Lord, may we find great solace in these truths. Especially in the hour of peril. And Lord, I pray especially this morning for those that are here or within the sound of my voice that know nothing of who you are, who have never experienced your saving grace, who frankly do not walk in a way that is pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to see the depths of their sin and the glorious grace of the Savior. And that today would be the day of their repentance. We commit them to you, Lord, and plead on their behalf. Thank you for meeting with us. Conform us into the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.